invite you to turn with me there, uh, Matthew chapter 18, and if you're in the blue pew Bible, you'll find that on page 823, uh, 823. You know, I've uh, come to the conclusion over time that one of the one of the most challenging areas in, in the life of the church uh, can be shepherding. Uh, and that can, that can be for many, many reasons. Sometimes there are, there are sheep <laughs> uh, within the fold that don't want to be shepherded. Sometimes there are shepherds uh, that have been called to shepherd that, that find it very difficult uh, to shepherd now, I'm just talking in general terms here as I say that. I, we could look at, at any of those within the church and, and find that this is the case. Yet, we also need to be convicted, and I am, that this is a characteristic of the church, the church of Jesus Christ, that we can't overlook. Uh, it's very clear in, in God's Word that there are to be shepherds. Uh, you know, in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, Peter is talking to the elders of the church, and, and he says this, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Very clear, very straightforward. And then uh, in uh, Acts chapter 20, just before he leaves the, the elders at, uh, at the church of Ephesus for the last time, they've come down to meet uh, Paul on a, on a journey and, and he's speaking just to them. And here's what he says to them. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock uh, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You know, I think he added that last phrase there just to emphasize the importance of, of this, of shepherding. And so we, we can say that shepherding is often difficult uh, but it's not optional. And it is truly built into the very foundation of what the church is, Christ's church. And it is part of God's grace and part of His provision for the church. And we can also say that when it's not there, it's not truly being practiced, uh, that there will be ramifications from that. It will harm the church. And there will be those who go astray, often many who go astray. And so... With that in mind, you know, I think any time that we're given help and instruction and insight into this area, it's important that we pay attention to that. And that's what we're doing this morning as we uh, come to uh, this passage out of Matthew 18, and in a moment we'll, we'll begin verse 10. Uh, but this is one of those passages that provides us with help in this area. And I, I will say the context of this passage is particularly important. Um, in the prior passage that we looked at last week, if you were here, Jesus spoke a bit about guarding against temptation. Uh, he, was, he was talking about taking preventative measures uh, to prevent those from the, the flock from falling away, being drawn away, falling into sin. Uh, now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the next passage, a very important passage here in Matthew 18, in which Jesus kind of outlines, he lays out the process 
by which we are, we are to follow within the church for discipline within the church when members of the church may have gone astray. Uh, and so today, and, and with those members, I include leadership as well. That same process is to be applied. And so today, right between those two places, uh, we're going to look at a passage that instructs us on the attitude that we should have uh, out of what we see with the Lord, but the attitude that we should have toward those who have gone astray or who are going astray. Uh, and this has everything, therefore, to do with shepherding. This is really there to prepare us for that next passage when we talk about discipline. Uh, and so uh, let's, let's take this to heart. I'm going to begin reading in uh, chapter 18, verse 10, and go through verse 14. So just a few verses. This is, this is Jesus teaching his disciples. Verse 10. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I invite you to join me uh, in prayer. Father, we thank you for this teaching, this teaching by the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that we can recognize that Yes, this was for His disciples. It was to instruct them for the work that they had ahead of them. But they were also to take it and instruct others with it. And today, it's to continue to instruct us within the church. And so I pray that You'll help us to understand it, to have eyes that are open to see, to see its value, and to take it and to apply it to ourselves. We do... I pray for your help with that process this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, three or four years ago, there were a number of us here who did a study on uh, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, uh, something you might be fairly familiar with. It was, it was out of a, a book that was written by John MacArthur. Uh, and I remember a particular moment in that study in which it made a real impression on me. And it was at a point in the story that really focuses upon the response of the father. You may remember in the story that, that the younger son uh, at one point returned. Uh, this was after he had asked for his inheritance early, something that just it wasn't done, it wasn't right. But he had asked for his inheritance, he had taken that inheritance, and he had gone and he had squandered it uh, with reckless living. And then he wound up with, with nothing left, and he was reduced to begging, and even to the point of longing to eat the food that the pigs ate, which in that culture and that day was absolutely despicable. And yet, he returned. 
He came back, and he, he was coming back to cast himself fully upon the mercy of the Father, uh, knowing, and he knew this through and through, that he was undeserving, not only to call himself his son, the son of the Father, but even to be a servant of the Father. But that's what he was coming back and, and, and asking for. He knew that he had acted wickedly, and beyond that, he knew that he had disgraced and he had dishonored his Father in just about every way possible. Now, the study that we were going through pointed out that the scribes and the Pharisees who were listening to this story, that's, that's who the story was primarily being told to, they were looking for this boy to receive from the Father exactly what he deserved, uh, which would have been, at a minimum, probably public humiliation uh, and, and, and at least a refusal on the part of the Father to even look upon the Son face to face. You know, in that culture, any form of restoration for something like this would have to be earned over years by the Son, and He could never really earn His place back as the Son of the Father, uh, but some type of restoration, as, as, as some other relationship, a, a servant might be possible. And so that's what they were looking for. And, and so when the Father actually, uh, what, he, what He actually did, what we see in the story, uh, would have been to them shocking and reprehensible. Uh, and here's uh, just a statement. You may remember this uh, from the story of the, the, the prodigal son. It says, While he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And I remember at this point when we were studying uh, this, uh, recognizing uh, really for the first time just how far out of character this was for the, for the father to behave in this way, in this uh, day, in this culture. You know, a man of his stature, who he clearly was, a, a nobleman, they would have never run. Running was for, for little boys and servants. But Jesus doesn't say that he sent a servant ahead of him but that he, and he must have picked up the, the, the skirts of his robe, and he took off, and he ran to greet the son. And, and in doing so, he threw out all of his dignity, all of his prestige, uh, and greeted his son. And here's what MacArthur said. I look back to the book, and this is what he said. He said, he collapsed on the boy in a massive hug, buried his head in the neck of his son, stinking, dirty, and unpresentable as he was, and welcomed him with a display of unbridled emotion. And then he said, in an amazing display of selfless love, openly despising the shame of it all, he opened his arms to the returning sinner and hugged him tightly in an embrace designed partly to shield him from any more humiliation that he might experience from others. And he noted this, that by the time they had returned together, the son was already fully reconciled to his father. As son, not as a servant. You know, what that study helped me to see that I hadn't fully grasped before 
was the obvious depth of love that the father had in this story for his son. And it's clear, therefore, that he must have been waiting for the son to return. Now, anybody that was there with him wouldn't have been able to see that love, but he was waiting. He was biding his time, waiting. And then when he saw the son return, that was when this outburst of emotion and of love for his son uh, was able to be seen by others. It just burst forth. And you know, that is a picture of what Jesus is showing us here in this kind of little mini-parable that we just read out of, uh, out of Matthew 18. He's showing us here the love that the Lord God has for every single member of His flock. You know, and is that story the prodigal son showed, it's, it's a type of love that's a radical departure from anything that this world knows or anything that really uh, is accepted as right and proper. And therefore, it's something that needs to be taught and understood and recognized uh, that this is the picture of a loving father who tenderly cares for his flock. And not just in a general way, not just generally for the whole flock, but for each individual sheep, member of the flock. And especially, especially for the weak and the vulnerable and the wayward. And so this teaching that we have here is for us. Now if you look at verse 10, he says right there at the very beginning, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's talking to his disciples. Uh, and, and he's saying in essence, pay attention to how I love the sheep. And now you do the same. You love them individually in the same way. Now, this, this teaching is especially going to be directed to those who are in leadership because partly it's preparing the way, as I mentioned earlier, for this teaching on discipline that, that we're going to see. He, he's going to say, you need to have this, this heart about you. You need, you need to have this demeanor about you. If you're going to be involved and engaged in the process of discipline of my flock, then you need this heart and to be prepared. So, yes, it's partly for leadership, but I think in a more general way, it's applicable to all members of the flock. He's saying, love those who are around you. This is my love for the sheep. You love them as well. You care for them in this way. Now, in his instruction here, for us to love each member of the flock, there, there are two elements that I think we need to see the first of those is that our greatest compassion must be for the one who is wayward. Our greatest compassion must be for the one who is wayward. And then secondly, our greatest joy must be for the one who has returned. And so first of all, our greatest compassion must be with the one who's wayward, the one who has strayed, uh, and, and, and notice that all the way through these, uh, these few verses, there's an emphasis on the word one. And the emphasis is that the shepherd knows his sheep by name. Uh, every single one of them. And therefore, he has a particular love 
and compassion for each individual one. And especially because He knows them uh, for the one who has strayed or the one who is beginning to stray. You know, in verse, in verse 10, the disciples here were given a direct command. Jesus says, See that you do not despise. Now, that word means look down upon one of these little ones. You may recall, uh, if you were here when we looked at the, the, the first words of, of chapter 18, Jesus taking a young child and, and setting the child in the midst of them. Uh, and, and then he, he spoke about the little ones. And, and what he said was, and this is so that we can understand what he's saying here, uh, he said, these are those who are like little children. Uh, he wasn't just limiting it to speaking about children, but he, he was saying this is uh, what, it's, what, what, it, what they're like. They're humble. Uh, they're dependent. Uh, they're weak in some ways. Uh, and so Jesus is calling his disciples here, first of all, to beware of pride within them. Do not look down on these, especially on uh, these little ones, the weak, the vulnerable. Do not look down on them, but rather, uh, in an opposite way, care for them. Care for the one of the flock, uh, and especially those who are weak and vulnerable. You can kind of think about what the tendency is here, right? Especially with leadership. It's not to care for the individual, uh, because that's often difficult. It can be messy. Uh, it takes time, uh, and it may stand in the way of, of some of the goals of leadership, uh, building up the numbers or, or whatever it might be. Uh, and, and, and so the tendency, and, and therefore the need for this teaching, uh, no, it's to care for each and every one. This is my heart. Now you do the same. And that's clearly his point here, care for each one. Now listen closely to the reason that he gives. This is the second half of verse 10. He says, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now here Jesus speaks of something that I think should be of, of great comfort to us. Have you ever been in a hospital? Uh, maybe in the ICU. You might have been there because you were, you were ill, bodily very weak. Maybe you had been in a, an accident of some kind, uh, or maybe been through a surgery. And all around you, there's kind of a buzz. There are nurses there, there are doctors, and they're taking care of this and that. And, and you realize as you lay there that they're really focused upon one thing. They're focused upon uh, providing for my, my nutrition and binding up my wounds and bringing me back to a place of full health. They're there to care for me. And, and as you lay back, you realize, you know, I can, I can really rest because I'm in their care. And they're good at this. They're experts at what they do. That's something that should be a wonderful feeling. Well, that's, that's what Jesus seems to be describing here when He speaks about their angels. That for each of the little ones who, who are a part of the flock, that there's something that's taking place behind the scenes that they can't see, that we can't see, 
But they're being cared for. They're being advocated for. Their needs are being brought before the Lord. And you know, he, he talks about angels. And that's what we see in Scripture that angels do. Uh, the author to the book of Hebrews says, right in, in Hebrews chapter 1, where he's, he's comparing Christ and, and the preeminent work of Christ to angels. And, and so, speaking of angels, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You know, this is something that should be of comfort to us that the Lord cares for those who are His. Uh, and what Jesus seems to be saying here about these little ones uh, is that they're being cared for in ways that we can't see, but they're that important to the Father, and therefore they need to be important to you as well. So take care of them. Now some, and I, just, I need to say this, some understand this verse as you, you read through it to suggest that each person has a particular angel that's dedicated to them. A, and you've heard the phrase, a guardian angel. But that's something we can't really find support for in the rest of Scripture. A couple of verses that people point to, but it's difficult to find that. But I will say that Scripture is replete with passages speaking about angels who take on that task of guarding and of ministering to God's people. Here's something that John Calvin said. He said, The care of the entire church is committed to angels to assist each member as his needs require. Is that something that we can see, that we can understand, that we can know all about? No. Uh, but it is that which we find in Scripture, and it should be of great comfort to us. You know, again, think about being there in the hospital room, being cared for, being tended, having your wounds bound up, being brought back to full health. That's the picture that we have, and it should be an encouragement to us. And it should lead us to obey this directive that Jesus gives here. Now, saying that in, in verse 10, and I will say, you may recognize for some, in some translations, there's a verse 11 that's there. Some, like the ESV, don't have that. And that's because in, in many of the, the, the oldest and best manuscripts that we have, uh, that that verse wasn't present, and we can see where it came from, from another place. And so it applies. We could use that verse. There's another passage that speaks of this, uh, but in this case, it doesn't seem that it's there in, in, in the original manuscripts, and so we don't have that there. But, but look with me at what uh, he says in verse 12, where really he expands upon what he said back in verse 10. Jesus says, what do you think? He, he's calling them to think about this. Uh, enter into this with me. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Now, many have read this and they've puzzled over it and they've, they've asked questions. Uh, what about the 99? What, what are the 99? Let's, let's understand that. You know what? That's not his emphasis here. It seems that the 99 are being given there as background so that he'll focus our attention upon 
the one. He's not saying, Jesus is not saying uh, that he's going to dis- disregard the main flock or that uh, human uh, shepherds are to disregard the main flock, but he's making the point that the shepherd's heart is for the one who has gone astray. The one who is proceeding onward without a right sense of direction for whatever reason. It may be a sheep that's being, been misled. It may be a sheep that's, that's been misinformed. It may just be following its own stubborn will. We know of people that are able and capable of doing that. But the longing of the shepherd is for that one to return to the fold. And his compassion and his desire is, is so great for that one that he's, he's willing to, to do whatever is needed to try to call him back. So the question that's inherent here for us, and, and of course this is especially for leadership, and that is, is this my heart? Is this your heart? Is it the heart of a shepherd? Is it the heart of the great shepherd that we see here to care for the sheep particularly and especially for their spiritual state? And I'll be honest, uh, this is a challenging question for us, especially for those of us here who are elders, pastors, uh, prospective elders. Uh, It's a challenging question. But you know, the model that we have for this is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, He is, as, as the author of Hebrews said, He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Remember what we read back in Ezekiel 34, where he says, finally, and this is wonderful news, and wonderful news for those who are called to shepherd, uh, to be an under-shepherd, this news that he says, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. He's not saying there, of course, Therefore, you don't need to, to, to be concerned about that. If you're called into a place of shepherding, you're called into a place of shepherding. And he equips for that. And yet, ultimately, he's the one who is doing that work, that true work of shepherding. Yet all of us here are called to have the same heart as he has. And to love each one particularly and especially especially to go after the one who has gone astray, the one who has departed, the one who has sinned and and continues in that sin in an unrepentant way. Like Him, our compassion is to be for the one who has strayed. Uh, But there is another emphasis that He gives here, through and through. And that is that our greatest joy must be for the one who has returned. Uh, You know, the key, the key, and it's always the case, the key when it comes to those who stray, there's a key there, and it's repentance. That is the goal, no matter what. And so the love of the Father that the Father has for the wayward sheep is most evident when that takes place. When there is a turning and a returning to the fold, uh, and that same joy that's expressed by the Father should show itself in the rest of the flock that there should be great joy 
whenever any sinner who had continued in this way but comes to a sense of his sin and, and returns, there should be great joy at the return of the one who has strayed. Now look with me at verse 13. And I'll remind you this comes just after the end of verse 12 where, where Jesus had said, does, does he, the shepherd, not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And then verse 13 he says, and if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. And again, the emphasis here is not on the 99. This isn't intended to say that the Lord has any less love for them. But the emphasis is on the one who was lost and is now found and has returned. Now don't miss that, that word, the very first word that he emphasizes here. He says, and if, if. Uh, there are some translations that I think help us to see the importance of that word. The, the New American Standard says, if it turns out that he finds it. Another translation says, if he actually finds it. Uh, the point there is that there is no guarantee that he will. Because we know there are times when a strange sheep cannot be found. He's lost and he continues in that wayward way until finally he perishes. And we can see this, can't we? We can see this if we've been in the church for any period of time. Uh, we come to know those who clearly in some area of, of their lives, they, they may have been a part of the visible church. They may have been walking together uh, with the church. But then there, there comes something that raises its head and, and they are drawn away or on their own stubborn will. They, they go away and they, they, they begin to walk down this other path. And there's a longing for them to return. Maybe the church is doing the right thing and calling them back, but they continue down that path. Ultimately and finally, perhaps, showing that they never really loved the Lord in the first place, even though they had seemed to walk with Him for a time. And so right here, don't miss that word, if, uh, because it is an important word. But I will say that the stress here is upon the occasion when there is success and there is a returning to the fold and the response of the shepherd is, is not just the, the, the response of joy over something that's been lost and is now found some material thing, but it has everything to do with the value of the thing that is lost. There is a response that comes from the shepherd out of the love that he has inside for the sheep, for the one that was lost. And so not only does he go and seek the lost, but then when, when the lost is found, he rejoices that when that particular one went lost, now he has returned to the fold. You know, Jesus says, and this is uh, out of that same chapter where we have the parable of the prodigal son, uh, he says this in, in a prior parable, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, these should be words of great joy for us and encouragement. 
that the very angels of God rejoice in heaven. There's this sense of a gathering together and a rejoicing over the repentance of one who was lost and is now found, is now a part of the fold. Now, please notice here that inherent in this uh, is this, this critical element that must be there. And that is repentance. True repentance must be there. A true turning from your sin unto Christ. That's got to be present. The unrepentant sinner is almost always going to say, isn't this true? God will accept me as I am. I'm, I'm good. God's going to, he, He's a God of love. And so He's going to accept me as I am. And what He's really saying is, I can continue in my rebellious ways and still be loved. But that's not to be found here. It's not at all here. Uh, that's not a return to, to the flock. A true repentance is when the sinner comes to a true sense of his sin. He sees it for what it really is, and he grieves over it. There's a sense of hatred for his sin. But then he, he looks up and sees the offer that's been provided by God in Christ, this offer of mercy. And the Lord Jesus has done that work and provided for the sinner. And it's offered freely. And the Lord says, come. Come to Me. Return to Me. And I will receive you. I will accept you. Trust in Me. And that's the one thing that needs to be done by the unrepentant sinner is to return to Christ. And so He returns. Yes, as one who is unworthy. That's what we saw with the prodigal son, right? He returned as one who is unworthy, yet as one for whom Christ has already paid the price. And therefore, he can return freely and know that he has received and he is accepted and his, his, his sin is looked upon no longer. And in the presence of the Father, he looks upon him or her in the same way that He looks upon His very own Son, the Lord Jesus. The, the, the price has been paid. And so what we see here through and through is the heart of the Father. We see a desire, a longing for the one who is lost to return to the fold. And yes, if you think about the prodigal son, that's exactly what we see there, isn't it? Uh, that the Father was there waiting, waiting for the Son to return. But we know that there was a desire in His heart for the Son. What had to happen? Repentance. The Son had to return. And so when He sees Him coming, what does He do? He sees Him a long way off. And He runs toward Him with unbridled joy bursting forth. What a picture of love. What a haven of comfort and of peace and of and of blessedness. And we see that affirmed here. Uh, this, this kind of heart of the Father, this position of the Father, we see this affirmed in verse 14. Jesus says, So it is not the will of My Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now I've got to say that as you hear those words, of course, this is not something that conflicts with the sovereignty of God. That He's expressing Himself here to us in a way that we can understand so that we can see God's heart toward 
His flock, God's heart for the sinner. And so that we can understand also what our heart should be like for others. That we should long for their repentance. We should long for their return. I, I, I wonder, you know, reading that verse there, verse 14, I wonder if you've ever thought about this truth and really spent time maybe meditating upon it, uh, allowing it to comfort, comfort you to get a sense of what, what, what the Lord's position is really like relative to His children. How His desire is for them. That this is God's will. That not a single one of these little ones should perish. That the Lord Jesus has accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. He's done the work for them. Now His desire is that they would turn and that they would receive this gift of grace and mercy and of salvation. Yes, at the beginning. But also on a daily basis because the Christian life is not a one-time repentance. It's, it's one of daily repenting and turning uh, because the sin remains, but the gift of life remains as well. I just want you to listen for a moment to the witness of Scripture on this, this point, on, on the Father's heart. I'm just going to read through a number of verses. You can listen. You can jot down the verses if you want. You don't have to turn there. Uh, that would mean you're going to be flipping constantly. Uh, but just listen to these, these verses. Here, out of Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. This is God speaking. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear Me and to keep My commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And here, out of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, Turn to Me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And here, out of Ezekiel chapter 19, verse, uh, 18, verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And then out of John chapter 7, Jesus speaking uh, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. And then 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then finally, out of the last chapter of the Bible, out of Revelation 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take from the water of life without price. As I read through those Scriptures, what we need to see there is that this is the heart of the Father for us. He says, I have provided for you exactly what you need. Now come and take and daily turn in repentance from your wayward ways and turn to Me. And I will take you in, and I will show you good pasture, and I will give you good drink. 
and food and I will care for you. He cares for those who are His. And, and He is constantly pursuing us and, and calling out after us that we would no longer go astray, but that we would come to Him because His greatest compassion is upon those who have strayed from the flock, that they might come back and be a part of the flock. And, and therefore, He provides for that through His church. And He calls for the church to do just that and, and for people, especially leaders, to care about the condition of the flock and to be shepherds and to look at their hearts and to call them back when need be with one intent, one heart, and that's only that they might return and that they might see Christ and experience Him. And that as they do that, there will be this great rejoicing out of a great love that comes from the Father and is given to us and the ability to love others because His joy is for the one sinner who repents for each one of us. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank You this morning that we can read these words out of Your Word and we can know that this is, is a true statement, a true picture of Your heart for the sinner. Because this is the Word of God and it is true and it has been given to us that we might see these things, we might know these things. And so we thank You that You have revealed Yourself in this way. Now, I, I pray, Lord, that You will help us uh, with seeing that and knowing that and taking joy in that and receiving that for ourselves. And not only that, but in heeding this injunction, this instruction of Jesus and taking that upon ourselves and looking at those around us, caring for the members of the flock. And I pray especially for the leadership, as you have set forth in your church, that the leadership will be those who care for the flock one by one, even though it's not easy at times and is messy at times. But we pray for your provision for us, and we pray that you will help us to be confident uh, in you and in that which you provide. We thank you and pray in this pray this in Christ's name. Amen.